This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. This is Neil McMillan inviting you to join me for Pulse of Politics. I'll be bringing you 30 minutes of interviews, conversation and commentary on issues that matter. That's Pulse of Politics. This week has seen the reintroduction of COVID-19 restrictions and Cabinet on Monday will determine whether the general election goes ahead on schedule on September 19th or is deferred. Meanwhile, the campaign for votes continues and it brought former Prime Minister Helen Clark to Dunedin last Tuesday in support of Labour's candidate for the Tyree electorate, Ingrid Leary. Helen Clark's programme was extensive. It included the town of Milton, a gathering at Mosgiel and an audience of hundreds for a lecture honouring the memory of Dame Dorothy Fraser. We had the opportunity to interview Helen at Mosgiel, firstly on domestic politics and then on her role as co-chair of a crucial panel for the World Health Organization on the pandemic. So here now is that interview. Helen, it's a little unusual for a former Prime Minister to campaign for a first-time candidate, as you are, for Ingrid Leary. Is this a personal decision, or is it because South Dunedin has been such a Labour Party stronghold, or is it because Tyree's seen as vulnerable? It's because I'm very supportive of women candidates, and I'm thrilled that uh, Ingrid has uh, stepped forward to uh, to be a candidate, and I hope she does uh, really well. New Zealand's done quite well in global terms on women's parliamentary representation. We're up to 41% now, <laughs> but you know, with encouraging more women to come forward, we, we may strike the magic 50-50, which would be fantastic. Jacinda Ardern previously worked in your office and uh, some will claim that you exert a considerable influence and the, the Guardian recently described you as as uh, her mentor. Is that, is that a fair summation, would you say? No, I, I wouldn't say so. Jacinda had one of her first jobs in my back office. She used to help prepare the background material for Prime Minister's Questions. And then uh, my chief of staff, uh, Southlander Heather Simpson, uh, we had good contacts with Tony Blair's government, and Heather was able to facilitate Jacinda uh, getting the overseas experience working in the the broader cabinet office uh, in the UK. Uh, So I saw very little of Jacinda. She was out the back, sometimes wave as I went by with a cup of coffee. And then, of course, she went offshore for a, a number of years and came back in 2008 when I was obviously exiting politics so I've, I've watched her her rise since then I think she's done fantastically well she's now my old electorate uh, but she has said on the record that obviously she's watched and seen how I did mm. things and you know it's been a role model but you know, she's her own person with her own ideas and she's she's doing well do you, I wonder do you regard the present administration as pursuing policies which your own government might have regarded as unfinished business there is unfinished business that they're picking up uh, but you know times change don't they you think uh, how narrowly we got through some of the progressive 
social legislation when I was Prime Minister. The Civil Unions Bill, you couldn't even talk of gay marriage in mm. 2002. Civil unions went through a very slim margin. Of course, it became so mainstream that eventually John Key's government had the Marriage Equality Bill mm. go through Parliament, a, a private member's initiative, but nonetheless go through with a huge majority. So times change. You know, the last minister who tried to amend the Contraception Sterilisation Abortion Act was me. Mm. And I had two proposals for change, both quite reasonable, and, and only one of them got through. And yet now Parliament will pass a, a more comprehensive law. So... Yes, times have changed, and that's mm. it's a good thing, and things can be done now which couldn't have been done mm. uh, in my time. If you were still Prime Minister, is there anything you'd have done differently? Oh, <clears throat> I, I think it, it's hard to put yourself in the position now because the times are are so different. I recall campaigning in 99 when we'd been through nine years of very run-down uh, social services and spending. There was a lot to put right. Uh, in effect, Jacinda's government has come in against a similar background, a tremendous amount of unmet need, and you know they've had to really invest very heavily in areas like mental health and addiction services, which were so under underserved. Uh, so many of those needs which can just be pushed to the background but do a real injustice if they're not attended to. So, look, I think the priorities have been right. And as much as you can do, you do do. do. Mm -hmm. I wonder, has the present government implemented any policies with which you would disagree? (laughs) Well, probably, but I I wouldn't want to be specific. Overall, I think they've done done pretty well. Considering that... uh, Jacinda has all along had a more complex governing arrangement. Uh, I was never in a situation of forming a government where Labour was not the biggest party. Labour was always the biggest party. So she pulled off a considerable coup to lead a government uh, from uh, Labour coming in in second place. But of course that meant accommodating both the Greens on one end and New Zealand First on the other. Now Again, times have changed because New Zealand First in my time absolutely refused to be part of any uh, confidence and supply agreement mm-hmm. uh, with, with the Greens. The, the deal was they didn't want the Greens in government and that was the bottom line. So things have changed and, and that's positive as well. But you know, there's undoubtedly things that Labour would like to have done that it couldn't do because it didn't have the votes. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the votes, you can't do things. And what would you regard as the main issues in this campaign and this election? So it's it's an election in very unusual circumstances. A global pandemic, the like of not, which hasn't been seen since the 1918 flu. Um, 1918, end of World War I, flu pandemic, traumatic year, uh, followed by the immediate post-war recession and so on. In our lifetimes, in our parents' lifetimes, we haven't seen anything like this. Uh, So in order to get New Zealand through it without enormous economic and social damage, the government has had to dig very, very deep. And that means this is not an election when a whole lot of expensive new promises are going to be made because everything is going to be looked at uh, through the lens of uh, can we afford it and, and how do we preserve our, our social capital, if you like, our, our, our social service, uh, social policy infrastructure, and, and look for new economic sectors which will 
help us replace what we've lost uh, with the, the very significant international tourism sector. Mm. Let's turn to the World Health Organisation panel of which you're a member, the panel for pandemic preparedness and response. What would you like to see this panel achieve? I think it needs to give a fair appraisal of what's gone right and what's gone wrong with the response and it needs to draw lessons from that about what could be improved. Now the truth is there are governments that have done not very sensible things but the issue is could the World Health Organization be stronger? Uh, Could it have um, uh, a mandate which made it more effective? Uh, do you need new mechanisms? Uh, do you need some kind of standard, standing pandemic emergency coordination capacity in the international system, which will bring the health organisation together with the international financial institutions? Because this is a full-blown economic and social crisis, not just a health one. So I think that there are some lessons to be learned out of it. If we lurch into another pandemic off the back of this one, and this one's not going anywhere right now, uh, we'll see a world in permanent chaos because where countries literally run out of money because economies are stalled with the pandemic and you have rising poverty and hunger, out-of-school, restless youth um, and a number of authoritarian governments taking the opportunity to repress further you have the preconditions for violent upheavals in society. And I sometimes say, think Venezuela many times over what happens when you have a meltdown of that kind. It has significant global peace and security ramifications. How serious are some of these roadblocks? That's uh, like the lack of collaboration by some of the world leaders. Well... You know, throughout our lifetimes, the U.S. has been a a pillar of the multilateral system. And currently, uh, the U.S. administration is not multilateralist. It's not its instincts. It's unilateralist. And so having that at the time of a pandemic, which requires a lot of global cooperation, uh, has been challenging. Uh, Up to the American people, of course, what they what they want to see for for their future. Uh, But international cooperation hasn't been great Mm. uh, in the pandemic. There's one exception, and that is that the European Union rallied uh, the the funding uh, conference for uh, $8 billion for therapeutics treatment and vaccine development. Uh, which was called for by one of the the global committees which advises on these things. That was helpful. But if you compare the response to the pandemic to, say, the Ebola outbreak, there's just no comparison. The world acted as one on Ebola. This is a Security Council resolution. Everyone was urged to step up. You just can't get that at the moment Mm -hmm. because the uh, geopolitics are so toxic. So... You know, whether that will work itself out in time, who knows. But uh, meanwhile, you have the World Health Organization struggling on, trying to do its best in a world that doesn't cooperate that well. With so many restrictions on international movement these days, how do you and your colleague on the panel conduct this 
review effectively, I wonder. <laughs> well, at the moment, Liberia is exactly 12 hours' time difference from New Zealand. So uh, often I will speak to my co-chair, former president of Liberia, at about 9 o'clock at night, which is 9 o'clock in the morning for her, uh, and we link to um, uh, people supporting us in Geneva. But a lot of my life these days is on video conferencing at night, uh, whether it's the, the WhatsApp or Zoom or WebEx or Kudo or Teams or any of the multitude of platforms. And you can get a lot done that way. And I, I would envisage that the panel's work will be largely done virtually because mm. the, the world is not safe to travel in at the moment. And you're hoping for an initial report in November. Will that target be met? Oh, it'll be a, it could be a progress report. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at that point, you wouldn't be wanting to draw any conclusions, uh, but you would be able to say, here's how we're going about it, here's who we've consulted, here's, here's the issues that are coming up. You could uh, comment that way. Uh, but the, the greater likelihood is that we would want to have something substantive to say by May next year when the World Health Assembly meets. Mm. You've talked about countries possibly signing up to a convention on the subject and that a vaccine, when it's developed, should be universally available and not just to wealthy countries. Mm. Mm. There is a lot of interest in having a a convention on pandemics which would uh, perhaps be modelled on the uh, International Atomic energy agency mechanisms that came in place after Chernobyl uh, as with a nuclear incident uh, with a pandemic uh, or a new virus it's critical that there is early very prompt uh, notification and total transparency and without that things do get away Uh, so the convention you know is is attracting quite a lot of interest and I'm sure it's something that will be put to the to the panel and finally, you've interested yourself in subjects as diverse as housing affordability, loneliness, mm. child obesity, mm. and the concert program mm. on radio, <laughs> as well as cannabis law reform. Mm. So mm. how will you be voting, if you're prepared to tell us, on the cannabis referendum and on the referendum on the voluntary euthanasia? I'll be voting yes in both uh, referenda. Uh, On end-of-life choice, you know, I've been around long enough to have met the people who say, I'm terminally ill, I've only got X time to go, the pain is excruciating, I'd like to end it. And I sit and I think, I don't know whether I'd make that choice myself, but why should I deny them? So, you know, (laughs) that's my attitude. My father is 98, he's definitely voting for it. You know, and a lot of the older ones, you know, they see Mm. people very stressed in those circumstances. They want to make that choice. On the cannabis one, I I do not support criminalising people who use cannabis. I am now the chair of the Global Commission on Drug Policy, and the, the evidence is clear that this is... A significantly less harmful drug than either tobacco or alcohol, both of which are legal. Now, the key thing is you don't promote the use of it, you don't promote the use of any drug, but to pretend that it is not widely available in society is really to have one's head in the sand. It's widely available largely through organised crime, which pockets the proceeds. And when something is prohibited, uh, you can't have any effective health messaging because the only message can be don't do it. <laughs> well, my experience is you say to young people, don't do it, they do it. So, so you need to bring it out 
into the open, put rules around it. Andrew Little's bill is good. It's got an age of purchase. It's got uh, specified contents of what can be sold. It can only be in licensed premises. There can be no advertising. There's not going to be dope cafes, you know. But it's going to stop people going to jail for things they shouldn't go to jail for. And that's a slippery slope once you get in the hands of the criminal justice system. Helen, thanks so much. Very grateful. Great opportunity to catch up with you. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. For the final segment of our program, we intend focusing on two issues that are not political in any way, that have no direct connection with the election yet they may have a significant influence on the functions both of government and of parliament. One relates to the way the public service is conducted, and the other is to better protect our human rights by enabling the courts to question laws enacted by parliament that may be inconsistent with the Bill of Rights. Neither of these has figured much in the news, so let's take a few moments to explain what they involve. First was Parliament's approval just last month of a major law which will effectively reform the public service. It replaces the State Sector Act of 1988 with a new Public Service Legislation Act and it recognises that governing in today's world cannot always be easily performed by single agencies or by departments working on their own. In the words of State Services Minister Chris Hipkins, it is no longer possible for any single agency to fix the really big and complex problems facing us that there have been major changes socially, economically and in technology and that many are on a global scale. The focus will be not on state services but on public services, a focus on greater collaboration and on how the public service organises itself in responding to specific priorities. One example is the scope for boards or joint ventures to be created that comprise chief executives from a range of relevant agencies to tackle issues confronting multiple portfolios. This would ensure a more collaborative approach to problem-solving, but such bodies would still be accountable to a cabinet minister and would be required to uphold the traditional principles and values of the public service, such as political neutrality, free and frank advice, and an appointment system that is based on merit. Now, the second item we want to mention is legislation with a rather long-winded title and known as the New Zealand Bill of Rights Declarations of Inconsistency Amendment Bill. This is not yet law, nor will it be, until approved by the next Parliament. But it is currently under consideration by Parliament's Privileges Committee and was open for public submission until last Tuesday. Many people, we imagine, will be aware that Although we have a Bill of Rights Act 
the rights it expounds may be overridden by Parliament, because Parliament has sovereign powers. For instance, the Attorney-General is required to advise Parliament of any proposed law which might be inconsistent with the Bill of Rights. But Parliament is not bound to accept this, and it will sometimes enact laws that cut across these rights, and may even do so knowingly. Senior courts may also make a declaration of inconsistency, but there's no mechanism that would require Parliament to revisit the issue. Under the proposed law, this will change. It means that when a court considers an act of Parliament to infringe fundamental human rights in a way that cannot be justified in a free and democratic society, then the Attorney-General must bring the matter to Parliament's attention and to do so within a specified time frame. This will apply not only to the Bill of Rights, but also to the Human Rights Act of 1993. The way in which Parliament responds is a matter for the House to determine under its own standing orders, but it does place an obligation upon Parliament to look at the matter afresh. Parliament may affirm the provision that's being questioned, or it may amend it, or it may even repeal it. That is for the House and its wisdom to determine, but it cannot be ignored. Maybe not a massive step, but certainly a step forward. And in the words of Justice Minister Andrew Little, it has the virtue of strengthening both civil rights and human rights that we would all like to regard as basic in a free and democratic society. And that's our program for the week. And this is Neil McMillan closing with a reminder, you can catch Polls of Politics at the same time every week, on air, online or on podcast. You've been listening to Polls of Politics, broadcast every Sunday evening at 8 o'clock on Otago Access Radio. If you'd like to hear this program again, you can download a podcast from oar.org.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.